Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope everybody had a great weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is uh, also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, Russia and unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back to the program and hope you guys had a great weekend. We have indeed. And uh, great to be back on your podcast. Uh, indeed, it's always uh, always a pleasure. Uh, and before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering hard stuff done right. Sam, action-packed uh, week. Uh, Wagner is back in the headlines uh, in two ways, um, and neither of them particularly good. After getting the additional ammunition uh, he wanted from the Kremlin in the wake of a very public uh, spat, uh, uh, Wagner owner Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, has withdrawn his fighters from Bakhmut as part of sort of a wider Russian uh, withdrawal with Ukrainian forces uh, retaining uh, both ground and also delivering, uh, retaining, you know, taking that ground uh, and then delivering uh, some blows as well. That was some of the most expensive real estate uh, in the world, given how many lives were traded over it. Where do we stand, uh, given Putin has turned Bakhmut uh, into a, la- a modern day Stalingrad? Well, at least uh, uh, as of this Monday, uh, Ukrainian forces are slowly counterattacking along the flanks around uh, Wagner's positions. Some of the Wagner positions are possibly in danger of being encircled. And so the question remains whether they hold as they have before and uh, throw even more soldiers and weapons and materiel at the Ukrainians or they retreat. Retreat is probably not an option considering how much was spent on Bakhmut and uh, how much Russian government needs Bakhmut to be a military success, military in general, because there's regular military fighting there. Obviously, Wagner is fighting there. We talked in weeks past about the political implications of Bakhmut and how the Russian government needs a victory, any victory at this point on any level. Any possible retreat from Bakhmut would be yet another public uh, string of defeats for the Russian government, defeats that were exacerbated last year uh, by uh, large-scale retreats from Kharkiv um, and regions of Ukraine. So in other words, Wagner needs to hold and Russian military needs to hold there. But again, holding there is becoming a lot more precarious. In fact, some of the comparisons out there are that Ukrainian military has been able to capture more territory in the last several days than Wagner uh, has been able to grind away for weeks. Um, has the Ukrainian offensive actually begun at this point from your perspective? Well, that's a good question. Um, it, it probably if a, a Ukrainian offensive were to begin, it would start with probing attacks. It would start with uh, some of the counterattacks along some of the Russian positions to see how strong or how weak they are and how weak they may have become over the past several weeks. It wouldn't be one massive attacking wave and and perhaps some of the commentators or uh, some of the people out there are waiting for this kind of one massive Ukrainian punch to take place in one direction. It probably would not take place in one specific direction, but along several directions where 
Russian positions or Wagner positions or other uh, Russian military and uh, security positions have become much weaker over the past several weeks. And uh, Sam, a, a very good day for the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, right? Well, over the weekend, uh, Russian military lost two aircraft and two helicopters in a single day. Apparently, they lost a Sukhoi-34, Sukhoi-35, and two um, MIL-8 uh, helicopters. Uh, the losses were very close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, questions swirl whether or not this was a very successful Ukrainian air defense attack or whether this was a friend or foe designation, meaning uh, Russian air defense did not identify Russian aircraft as friendly and fired on them. And uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense has not adequately responded to that. They did acknowledge that at least one aircraft and one helicopter was lost. It is likely, given the proximity of these um, aircraft losses to the Ukrainian border, that this may have been a uh, friendly fire incident because Russians are aware of uh, some of the Ukrainian cross-border attacks against Russian territory, probably not by aircraft, by missiles and drones. Uh, They may have been in a state of heightened alert, and uh, they may have mistaken Russia's own air assets for the Ukrainian ones. And so in a single day, Russia lost uh, four assets to uh, aircraft, to helicopters. Uh, Unclear uh, what the conclusion is going to be, but that's for less aircraft uh, that Russia can fight with. The British uh, have been very forward uh, leaning in the capabilities that they've been providing uh, Ukraine. Um, And the latest last week uh, was the decision to provide the Storm Shadow, uh, a very potent weapon, an extremely precise weapon. And one of its uh, most attractive or or most differentiating features is its brooch uh, penetrating uh, warhead. Um, Vladimir Zelensky is in London on a surprise visit, and Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, made available um, strike uh, drones. The Russians are complaining about both of these. But what does the introduction of these kinds of more precision, long-range weaponry mean for uh, the course of this war? It means that the Ukrainian military can strike well within Russian rear. It can attack their supply chains and communication lines. It can strike military bases, military installations, warehouses and some of the key infrastructure facilities like energy nodes uh, well uh, behind the front line. And of course, that places a lot of Russian regions, which are uh, close to the Ukrainian border, in the crosshairs. And so um, the availability of those missiles essentially extend Ukrainian reach by a significant uh, percentage, and especially against some of the more hardened uh, positions and locations where uh, Russian HQ and command and control facilities gated. Um, I want to go back uh, to Prigozhin uh, for a moment. Um, he has managed to brittle, bitterly criticize uh, the Kremlin uh, and still survive, uh, right? Every He crosses a line and he backs up. He hasn't directed his ire directly toward Putin yet. But now there's a story in the Washington Post uh, that says that the Wagner boss, according to leaked uh, classified U.S. documents uh, that were all part of the Discord leaks pro- project, and uh, the paper has been doing a terrific job covering this stuff, um, Apparently, Prigozhin offered to disclose the location of Russian forces to Ukraine in exchange for being spared further attacks. What what does this mean for his longevity in an ecosystem where the adage holds no man, no problem? Well, it's not clear how credible Prigozhin's proposals were and the Ukrainians and and others were quite skeptical of his proposals. What's interesting is that um, it seems the more vocal Prigozhin is, um, the more he seemed to be getting his way. Uh, He apparently um, 
got his ammo and therefore he did not withdraw his forces from Bakhmut. Uh, he, again, is uh, publicly criticizing the MOD, but here I think the issue isn't with Prigozhin, but with the power dynamics in the Kremlin. And we have witnessed before, and we have come to the conclusion before that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin likes to uh, make sure that there is competition amongst uh, his entourage, uh, amongst his circle, people fighting for influence with uh, Vladimir Putin, and uh, people who are willing to uh, occasionally criticize their opponents to make a point. What's important here is that Prigozhin has patronage of Vladimir Putin and no one else. He does not appear to be part of any other extensive connections or or patronage network within the uh, Russian elite at the moment. But he himself still retains certain power and influence. And going after Shoigu, all he has to do is basically remain loyal to Vladimir Putin. Uh, it is interesting that we haven't heard Vladimir Shoigu or other M MOD officials actually retort back or push back against some of the Prigozhin's claims. Uh, people are saying, or some commentators may be saying that uh, Prigozhin needs to stay away from windows and he may be done for. And on, on a certain level, it may be true. Again, on the other hand, he serves a purpose and he serves a very significant purpose as a, as a pressure valve of sorts. Uh, he lets out the steam and uh, he lets out sort of a lot of, um, um, a lot of critique against uh, those parts of the Russian government that have not been performing well. And just like Vladimir Zhirinovsky before him, right now, Prigozhin says what many Russians may be thinking, either just in the general population or even in the government or even amongst the elites. I, I don't have a good idea of what will happen or not happen to Prigozhin. Again, he and Wagner Group are still very useful to Vladimir Putin, to the Kremlin and to the Russian government and right. even to the Russian military. So uh, apparently, at least for the near future, Prigozhin may be able to speak his mind, point out some of the deficiencies within the MOD, and probably survive to fight another day. Uh, and, and indeed, it's an organization that's useful to the Kremlin well, well beyond Ukraine, but also from a worldwide perspective. Uh, you uh, were involved, uh, uh, you have been following uh, closely the debate in Russia uh, about uh, the defense ministry uh, being uh, the cemetery of good ideas and innovation, uh, right? A lot of ire is directed toward uh, the Russian system. The Ukrainians have very agilely created their own uh, um ad hoc system of getting capabilities fielded. So they're disciplined where they have to be, but very flexible and innovative where they have to be. I mean, the whole nation's additive manufacturing industry and, and folks who've got 3D printers have been harnessed uh, to build unmanned systems. What is this debate? What do you think are the interesting lessons actually the United States can learn from the criticism being directed against uh, the Kremlin and the Russian Ministry of Defense? Talk to us about the criticism and where do you think the interesting elements of it are? Well, a lot of Russian Telegram channels are still very much open and uh, and openly rather critical of how the Russian military and the Ministry of Defense are conducting their affairs. And a lot of this is done with an eye towards Ukraine. What Ukraine has been able to do is to establish very good connections and networking opportunities and discussions between the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, the military industrial complex, the high tech sector, the civilian volunteers and the war fighters. And this network functions every day and can actually deliver 
a lot of the civilian, a lot of the uh, modern high-tech solutions directly to the warfighter much faster than on the Russian side. And on the Russian side, of course, the MOD is a large bureaucratic lumbering structure. And it is very difficult for a lot of uh, private sector ideas, especially now in the midst of the war, ideas such as the development of uh, unmanned systems. It's very difficult for some of these private efforts to actually go through all of the necessary MOD paperwork and acquisition processes and get to the warfighters in time. And one of the Telegram posts I'm alluding to actually spoke about the fact that the most efficient way to get some of these high-tech or um, civilian solutions to the front is a is basically bypassing the MOD altogether via crowd, uh, crowdsourcing, crowdfunding, and um, essentially a private sector patronage. Uh, so there's a, a lot to sort of unpack here in terms of how do large militaries, how do large military bureaucracies in the general objective sense acquire civilian technologies, especially high-tech technologies? Do they establish separate initiatives do they establish separate organizations that serve as bridges between the military structure and bureaucracy and the civilian high-tech um, infrastructure? Do they uh, try to reform some of the military institutions, departments, and, um, and offices to, to easier acquire these technologies, or do they do something else? And obviously, the MOD, again, isn't flexible enough, isn't fast enough when compared to the Ukrainian military in getting these ideas out. But uh, these comments are sounding off a lot more now. There's a lot more discussion on Russian Telegram and social media, not just about the mistakes made by the MOD, but about some of the deficiencies within the Russian Ministry of Defense in general in the face of a war that has used, incorporated, and developed so many civilian high-tech solutions uh, with great success. And I'm talking about UAVs, drones. I'm talking about the um, implications of using artificial intelligence and machine learning, as the Ukrainians have claimed, and other high-tech solutions. Um, let me ask you one last uh, question about the, uh, the Russians. We've got about 30 seconds left. How does Putin respond to the drone, uh, the storm shadow, uh, and new precision strike drones, right? I mean, every time there's this suggestion that you know, the alliance has crossed the line and what's pro what it's providing to Ukraine. And actually, that line doesn't change. Uh, do you think that there is a line or is the lines just sort of being made up by Putin as they go along? Uh, it's likely that uh, Russian rocket strikes, missile strikes and strikes by Shahed 136 and 131 loading drones are going to accelerate or they're going to be concentrated on specific Ukrainian targets that the Russians designate as the military uh, storage site or the, um, for example, a site where uh, some of these drones and missiles are stored and located or where people are trained on how to fly them or where they're launched from. Uh, we don't have any, um, we don't have any evidence to conclude right now that Russian tactics would change significantly from from the previous tactics when Ukrainian attacks were responded with by these missiles and uh, Iranian-made drones. Uh, interesting indeed. Sam, uh, thanks very much as always for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the program. Hope you have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo.
And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every week, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, this time from Tokyo. Byron, welcome. Good evening. Uh, and thanks so very much for joining us, or as they would say, uh, where you are, konbanwa yosoko go sanka idadaki arigato gazaimasu. Very good, Vago. And a, a pleasure to be here, much as it's nighttime in Tokyo. Talks are uh, continuing uh, while you're on the other side of the world between the White House and congressional staffers to avoid uh, a debt default uh, with the president and lawmakers to meet again shortly. Congress uh, has raised the borrowing limit 78 times since 1960 uh, alone, if you believe what's been uh, written in the papers. Um, You've got the risk a lot higher than markets do, which is about 1%. You've got it at about 20%. Why are you so much higher than where the street sentiment is? Well, I don't know, Vago. I guess there are two ways to couch that. First, you know, we work with estimated probabilities, and uh, it's really a methodology from the Central Intelligence Agency. 20% may sound high from a probabilistic standpoint, but it's actually, it's kind of the low end. I, I won't say, well, first, I don't think we're going to default on U.S. Treasury obligations. I do think we could see a situation where we go a week maybe two weeks after the X date and treasury has to start to prioritizing payments. Um, there was a debate discussion uh, back in the 2011 debt ceiling crisis where basically treasury and fed had a, uh, there's a transcript you can download it or find it. I think Brooklyn Brookings had a link to this um, where basically there is a discussion about, can you prioritize payments on treasury debt that comes due and then and then worry about the rest of of what other federal obligations uh have to be paid now i personally think you you could you could you know kind of cross the train track and touch that third rail but your hand is going to stay on that third rail for maybe maybe a week or two at most because as soon as you start doing things like people missing military pay people start missing social security checks um, I think the political uproar will will overwhelm um, the current stance of both the president and the speaker, uh, which seems to be they don't want short term extensions. They don't want, they don't want to just kind of kick this thing down the road. And I, I think that could be the catalyst to actually, um, uh, you know, forcing at, le at least at least a temporary suspension of the debt ceiling and you know more time at negotiations and then you have to figure out so what's going to ultimately result from these negotiations and i still think that's going to be a tough a tough gap to narrow um do, do you get a sense i mean even our allies are exhausted by this uh, and there is a sense that this is going to leave a permanent mark because folks don't want to rely on a reserve currency that is unstable, right? I mean, we're a reserve currency because we're stable, but every year and a half, two years, we go through this uh, drama, uh, which is a political drama. It is, it, there is no reason in the world to be, you know, a great video clip from Warren Buffett, uh, you know, and Charlie Munger uh, talking about how stupid this is. Uh, and, and yet um, the definition of insanity is knowing what you're doing is insane and doing it anyway. And that's what we're doing uh, because the domestic political fight is more important 
than than actually re resolving it. I mean, does this leave a permanent mark? Do you think? Uh, given that the dollar is one of America's kind of biggest superpower attributes? It's kind of an expanding torrent of issues, isn't it? I mean, it, it really becomes, you know, it, it's just, it's a manifestation of a broader political problem where you just can't get things done. Um, and and that, that again, you know, if you overlay that with the concerns about, so, you know, how would this impact U.S decision-making in, in a major crisis. And I think, you know, it, it, it just would raise questions, I think, in any country's mind about, well, it's, it's not just, it's not just U.S. financial stability. It's, it's more a foundational question, which is, can the U.S. come to grips with its fiscal house and, and how to put that fiscal house in order? I mean, I don't think anybody, myself included, is saying, hey, everything is just fine. Just ignore this problem of, federal debt. But I do think there's, there's a question about, um, you know, it's, it's a longer term question about, so how do you, how to resolve that? And other countries have been through, you know, in effect debt crises that prompted them to kind of get a handle on stuff. Sweden is one that came to mind um, where, you know, but you're not going to solve this stuff overnight. You're not, you don't solve this by, by hammering out a deal, you know, in, in, in a week or two weeks, you know, and it can't be abrupt. I mean, it has to be something that you're going to move into over a, a, a two, three, four, five-year period with a longer-term goal in mind. And I just think that that if that was the signal that was being sent, people would be a lot more comfortable with with what the U.S. is up to. But right now, um, I, I can understand the unease at, at what people see going on. Um, the implications uh, for, you know, I'm mean, right. I mean, there are dire implications for the U.S. economy. Many have discussed that, including a potentially a double digit uh, drop. We talked about the reserve currency uh, element of it, given that, you know, allies and partners are sick and tired of this um, as well. You maintain that the primary impact of contractors is cash flow. Why? Well, because going back to that point, um, there, there are two thoughts here. The, the real issue is, look, if you if you if you miss your pay, if you're you're submitting your invoices to Uncle Sam and Uncle Sam says, I'm not going to pay these for two weeks, that's a cash flow problem, right? right. Um, I, I think everybody agrees the money's there to pay these things. You know, that that's not the question, at least, at least the obligations that have already been incurred. Um, so from but you know, you come back down to what's the impact on company. The guidance and management put forth for 2023. This is really going to impact their sales. I mean, it's it's not. This is the the budget debate is really going to be over FY24 and the out years, in whatever comes out from whatever deal might be concluded. And that's really about longer term growth expectations. So I just see this as right around June, July. It, it depends the timing on this. You know, now federal shutdowns may be something else that you have to factor in later in the year when the new fiscal year starts, but at least right around the X date, it's going to be a cash flow issue. That's all. And I may not even show up in financial states. Um, the bigger question is, you know, if consensus sell side uh, sales estimates are kind of in that mid signal digit range <clears throat> for U.S. contractors in 2024 and 2025, you know, are those going to be achievable <clears throat> if you have uh, extended continuing resolutions and a, and a couple of shutdowns to boot? Um, 
for fiscal year 2024. That I think is the bigger factor that, that people are going to be asking about about uh, about the U.S. contractors. And then to your point, you know, the flip side of this may be, well, how is this going to impact international defense spending? Um, I'm in Tokyo. You know, I, I don't think, uh, you know, <laughs> Japan in effect intends to double their defense spending because I think the U.S. has always got their back, even though they're going <clears> to <throat> look still look at the United States as a very close ally. But um, the, uh, the, the the international ramifications, I think, are also pretty intriguing for, uh, you know, what all this will mean in relative growth that U.S. US contractors can see to, compared to other countries in the world. Uh, I, I always love the laws of unintended uh, consequences uh, on this, uh, including, you know, perfectly uh, great startup companies who ended up getting, you know, badly damaged uh, because their investors were so vested in crypto that when crypto went off the cliff, you know, they, they ended up getting hurt in it. So it's, it's, it's certainly, you know, it's too hard to war game, but it's it's fascinating. Uh, how this stuff yeah. uh, from a historical perspective is going to play out. Um, I want to get to a look at the week ahead in a moment, but I want to ask you, NATO is poised to adopt uh, a new spending and investment model. It's very much akin to what they did uh, during the Cold War, You know, not just increased spending, but actually have specific planning on the capabilities uh, and the specialization among member nations uh, that they ought to be delivering. What are the broader implications uh, of this Right, that we're likely to see adopted at the Vilnius Summit? I think, well, a couple of thoughts, Fago. You know, you, you have to have the fiscal capacity to do this. Um, the, the backdrop is still going to be Russia remains some sort of military threat. Uh, and I think I think that will. I mean, I, I just don't think we're going to go back to the 1990s, uh, let alone, you know, 2013 or 2010 with regard to Russia's, um, how Russia is viewed as, as a military threat. Um and, and you're right, you know, I, I think it's kind of a to be determined. Um, there will be specific areas of, of the European defense industry that should benefit from this. Uh, but kind of like what we've seen in the United States, that's going to take a year or two to really kind of build up a head of steam and, and get underway. I mean, you, you have to hire people, you got to work your supply networks. Um, and then this point about rationalization, um, you can see that kind of, of outcome, but but that's kind of the to be determined categories. We get into the, the specialization, and in turn of that specialization, how that benefits specific sectors within the European defense industry. Uh, it is uh, going to be uh, interesting indeed. Um, walk us through uh, the week because it is a particularly busy week this week. It's always a particularly busy week, but. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of Senate hearings. I think Senate Armed Services Committee is doing a hearing at Special Operations Forces. There are two other hearings uh, that, that broadly pertain to AI, kind of the role of AI in the federal government. The Senate Judiciary is, is doing one of kind of rules or guardrails for AI. And I just think those, those two hearings aren't directly relevant they don't directly bear on defense, but they are relevant to defense because AI is something that the United States is looking uh, for, for advantage. So are a lot of other countries too. So how you resolve, I think some of these issues and concerns that have been expressed about AI, it's not just going to be, a, it's not just something the U.S. can solve. It's really going to have to be a, a global, some sort of global agreement on standards and guardrails on this. Um, 
Uh, Atlanta Council is doing an event on the Ukraine counteroffensive, which is sounds like it's underway, um, particularly given some of the, the action that's handed at, at Bakhmut and then some of the strikes <clears throat> and, I guess, aircraft downings reports of, of uh, Ukrainian Special Operations Forces um, downing Russian aircraft over Russian territory. Oh, and then, of course, you know, the backdrop, the whole debt ceiling uh, debate and discussion. And, and I know there are other... There, there, Rusi in the UK was doing an event on, on uh, space programs, space policy. Um, I, I know there were other events going on uh, that more broadly pertain to defense, but those are the ones that are top of mind right now. Byron, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, arigato gozaimasu. Uh, and looking forward to having you back on again uh, next week. Thanks so very much and have a great trip. Arigato, Margo. <laughs>